How you doing, Crossbridge Brickle? Good. good. It's good to be here with you. Um, I am Felipe Assis. I don't get to come here um, as often as I used to uh, because Pastor Carter has been doing a great job as a campus pastor, and um, I love to hear you know the stories of what God is doing in the midst of this church through the leadership of this church. Uh, but when I when I get to come, I get to uh, you know be with you and uh, you know. Um, talk to some of you that I haven't seen in a while and, uh, and get to rejoice in, in, in person. Um, I am uh, the lead pastor of Crossbridge and I spend most of my time out in Pinecrest. Um, now, we are in this series of sermons based on this theme of Advent and uh, I've had a lot to think, obviously, as you have. I don't know if you have, but I have had a lot of time to think about um, this season and what this season means and represents for us Christians especially as we gather on Sundays to worship God and to remind ourselves of God's gift. I I am aware of uh, two groups of mistaken people during the season, and I get to talk to people that are in each of these groups on a constant basis. Uh, you know, the first group of people that I believe are mistaken during this season is are those who uh, are tempted to believe that they are unlovable because of things that they have done in the past, because of where they find themselves in life right now. They carry a lot of shame and guilt. My wife is a counselor, and uh, at this time of the year, her work hours tremendously increase because people really want to process uh, their shame and their guilt, especially as they're faced with others that they know that are with their friends, uh, that are enjoying life, and, and they are not. Uh, there are those who don't feel like they're loved either, uh, not just that they're unlovable, uh, but they are unloved because of suffering. I, um, uh, I have a family at our church in Pinecrest uh, that has recently lost the mother, right? The mother has died to cancer, and uh, the dad was telling me, I was asking him, you know, this is the first Christmas without mom at home, and I was asking him, uh, so David, how are things? And he says, man, it's, it's really, really tough. The other day I asked my kid, hey kid, what do you want for Christmas? He says, I want my mom back. He says, well, that I can't give you. And, you know, there are people that are going through the season and uh, they feel that God has abandoned them. Uh, they feel lonely and uh, they do not feel loved. And maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're in this group of people. And I want to tell you, uh, if you like to believe, if you're being tempted to believe that you are not loved or that you are unlovable, that you're mistaken. Uh, the second group of people are those who believe that they deserve all the love and all the party and all the gifts because uh, they've been nice. And so uh, they're waiting for Santa's reward and uh, they're, they're grateful for the life that they have, but they feel that it's because they have made good decisions and they deserve it. And you know, this group also couldn't be further from the truth, especially from the core message of Christmas. The core message of Christmas is this, okay? This is the truth of this season. This this is what the season communicates to us. One, that you are loved, but you are not loved because you deserve. What Christmas teaches us is that God loves us graciously. It's an undeserving love of God that has come to us through Jesus Christ. And I think that the passage that we have in front of us reminds us of that, of how God loves us lavishly and graciously, how in Christmas, how on Christmas Day, you know, that message became really, really clear to us and to the world. So when we look into this passage here, there are two things that I want to look through with you as we uh, 
you know, sort of spend our time here together tonight thinking about the fact that we are loved by God. First, in this passage, we see clearly God's love in action. God's love, in other words, is beyond words. Sometimes we like to love people with words. God loves us with action and and gestures. It's real. His love is a verb to us. Uh, The second thing that we see here in this passage is that God's love is, is not just action, but God's love has come to us in person. Not just come to us in action, but has come to us in person. So, one, God's love has come to us in action. Now, as the passage was being read to you, I don't know if you remember, because right after we read the passage, we lit the fourth Advent candle. But let me remind you of what this passage is about. This is a conversation between Isaiah the prophet and Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the time. Uh, he was going through a very difficult time in his life in particular. Uh, um, he was under siege, basically because uh, the king of Israel, now remember, uh, they were going through a time where the kingdom had now been divided. It was a divided kingdom. So you had Judah with Jerusalem as a capital, and the kings that were of the lineage of David were the kings of Judah. And then you had the other kingdom, which was the kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria. And, and uh, here's Ahaz. He's a king of Judah, and he is being, uh, he's under siege because the king of Israel of the other kingdom, the divided kingdom after the civil war, had made a pact or has, had made an alliance with the king of Syria to take out Ahaz. Okay? Now, Ahaz, uh, there's not a whole lot of information about Ahaz here in the Bible, um, but here's what we know about Ahaz, that Ahaz was a very bad king. You know, another chapter that tells us about Ahaz, it teaches us about Ahaz, is 2 Kings chapter 16. And this is what we learn in 2 Kings 16. It's not printed, the text is not on the screen, so you just have to pay attention. We read this about Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. So here's a, here, here we have the picture of a young king, of an arrogant leader, of an immature leader, and someone that has decided to part ways with his tradition has decided to part ways with the way in which things should be done. Kings of Israel, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, they were in covenant with God. They were actually covenant heads to the people. You know, covenants that God made with his people were sort of contracts that God would come to the leader of his people and would say this, I want you to help uphold the terms of this agreement that I'm going to make with you and, 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 and you as the leader of the people. That if you are obedient, right, to the terms of this covenant, I promise to bless you and to pour blessings from heaven on you, and I promise to protect you. But if you are disobedient, if you break the terms of the covenant, in other words, if you reject my law, and if you decide to follow your own ways, then you are liable for what's known as the curses of the covenant. And here is Ahab. Here's a guy that completely deserves the curses of the covenant because he is a disobedient king. His father David had honored the terms of the covenant, but he had departed from that, and he was just leading his people according to his own mind. So uh, this guy is so bad that if you continue to read 2 Kings 16, at one point in his life, he actually sacrifices one of his sons in the altar of this pagan god. Am I better in the light now? I remember that I had to be 
um, sort of in the middle here, but I like to be close to the people. So this is, there's like this tension, you know, going on here with me, within me, right? I like to be with you guys. I feel that I'm sort of distant. Um, but anyhow, this guy was so, so bad that at one point he decided to sacrifice his son at the altar of this pagan deity, this pagan god, right? This being a, uh, a king of Israel. Now, you know, what, a, what does a guy like that, you know, deserve? This is very, very, very revolting, right? You have uh, leaders like Hitler that killed people of, of, of different races and all that because he thought that his race was superior to others. But this guy killed his own family. He killed his own son. And in his time here, we find in the passage here, you know, you put 2 Kings 16 together with Isaiah 7. And in his time of, of, of great despair, you know, we read in the beginning of chapter 7, uh, Isaiah 7, that when he found out that he was under siege and his life was in real danger and his people's life was in he- real danger, his city was in real danger, that his heart and the heart of the people shook like trees shake when the wind comes. Right? That's the picture that we get right there in verse 2 of chapter 7. That's, that's how he failed. And in his time of greatest need, instead of going to God, the God who had said that he would be faithful to his people, the people of Israel, you know where he goes? He goes to the king of Assyria, another pagan nation, and he asks that king to deliver him from the hands of the king of Syria that had been in alliance with the king of Israel. You know, here are his words to uh, the king of Assyria. He says this, He said, I am your servant and your son, something that he should only be saying to God, right? Come and save me from the heavy-handed invasion of king of Aram and the king of Israel. They're attacking me right now. Then Ahaz robbed the treasuries of the palace and the temple of God of their gold and silver and sent them to the king of Assyria as a bribe. So not only... Did he not go to God for salvation, for rescue, but he goes to this other pagan king, but then he takes the artifacts of the temple of God, which was the treasuries of Israel, and he gives it to this guy, to this other foreign pagan king, as a way uh, of a payment so that he would be delivered. And and in fact, the king of uh, Assyria comes and helps him defeat his enemies, but even though it helps him in a short in a short run, it doesn't help him in a long run. His life is marked by conflicts and wars and deaths, and he has a very short rule. Okay. Now, when we read stories about people like that, bad people like Ahaz, we tend to feel good about ourselves, right? It's like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not as bad as this person. But what I want you to understand, especially when you come across a story of someone in the Bible, Because the Bible really tells a story of real people. And that's why I think the Bible is actually really true, you know, besides many other things. But because it really depicts the stories of of, of real people. There's no one that has it all together here in the Bible. And when we read stories like the stories of Ahab, we should not be feeling good about ourselves, but we should try to find how much are we like this person? And how much do we need the rescue of God like this person needed? You know, when I think about my own life, I see myself... And Ahaz, and I, and, I, and I would want you to see yourself in Ahaz too. So, you know, he, he, here's one thing for you to think about. Uh, you may not be sacrificing your children. You may not even have children, but, you know, who, who knows? Or maybe you're sacrificing your health. You're, you're not sacrificing your children in the altar of a pagan God, but you are sacrificing your health. You're sacrificing your relationships in the altar of work or in the altar of image. 
You know, we have these things that we call functional saviors in life, that when we are in times of great need, when we are under siege, when the enemies are breathing down our neck, we run to that which we think will give us and bring us salvation other than God. We're all doing that on a daily basis. And that shows us how much we are like Ahaz, right? And what altar are you sacrificing on a daily basis? Are you sacrificing on the altar of romance, your, you know, physical or sexual integrity? Are you sacrificing uh, in the altar of image? Are you sacrificing in the altar of work, your health, and many other things? Where, where are you sacrificing? Where do you really go to when you think about being lost or when you think about, you know, facing hard times in life? Where does your hope go to? Who are you looking to for salvation? You know, Ahaz was looking at the Assyrian kings. You may be looking at a boss. You may be looking um, at, you know, a performance. You may be looking at a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or sometimes your kids. When in reality, you should be running to God. Now, what's so beautiful about this story here, and I don't know if you picked this up, is even though Ahaz is as bad as it, can, it, it, as it comes, right, God is still pursuing of Ahaz. Even though we are like Ahaz, God is still pursuing of us. And, you know, the first word, actually, that we read here, I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 10, the first thing that was read to us is, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. You know, a long time ago, God should have done away with Ahaz. A long time ago, God should have written him off right? But he didn't. God was still communicating with this person. You know, if you've ever been with, through betrayal, someone has ever betrayed you, think about that, you know, maybe someone that you've worked with, maybe, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend that you've had, maybe parents, you know, if you ever feel betrayed, you would never want to see that person, like in Portuguese we say, you know, there's an expression, you would never want to see that person painted in gold in front of you, right? You, you wouldn't want to see that person ever, ever, ever again, because it, that person has caused you so much pain. It has betrayed your trust. And here is a king that should be faithful to God. And he's constantly betraying God. And God still is ever pursuing of him. You know, some people think that the Old Testament is about the law. And the New Testament is about grace. Couldn't be furthest from the truth. And over and over and over, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you, you, you read of God's, God's loving kindness, of his grace towards his people and towards broken and failed people and leaders such as Ahaz. And that gives us, should give you a lot of comfort because that's the nature of our God, that he's pursuing him. You know, God, God shows up to Ahaz. I don't know if you notice this still uh, in, verse 10, in verse 11. And God says to him, ask Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. You know, God, God says to him, you don't need to trust the king of Assyria. Uh, I promise to deliver you. These nations that are conspiring against you are not going to go very far. If you read the previous verses that are not printed up to verse 9, that, that's exactly what God communicates through Isaiah. And God actually even says to Ahaz, Sorry, something's happening here. Uh, God even says to Ahaz, if, if, you, if you don't believe that I can actually come and deliver you, that I will deliver you, that I will save you from your enemies, you can ask for a sign, and I will give you a sign. I will give you a proof. Anything between Sheol and heaven. Sheol, for them, was the place of the dead, uh, or, or maybe hell. Anything in between, I'll give you a sign. And you know how Ahaz responds in verse 12? 
Look at his response. You know, so God is pursuing this guy, and this is how he responds. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. You know what he does? He uses the scriptures to justify running away from God. You know, a lot of people do that. Because there's a passage in the Old Testament, you should not put the Lord to test. In fact, Jesus quotes that back to the devil in the desert. He says that to the devil when he's tempted by the devil. But that's his way of dismissing God and dismissing God's salvation and dismissing God's love for him. He's, in other words, saying to God, God is saying, you know, I promise to deliver you and I'm willing to give you a sign. He's saying, sure, you will save me. But you know what? I got this. I know where to go. And he goes and he runs to the king of Assyria for salvation. That's a picture of what we're all doing on a daily basis. We're saying, God, God, thank you for your salvation, especially during Christmas, right? But, but, I, but I know what to do. Thank you very much. These words that you guys speak at church on Sundays, these pastors, they're beautiful. But, you know, I, I know how to live my life. And, and, and we're always rejecting and putting aside the salvation that God has in store for us. But God says, you know, regardless. Okay, so God gives him another chance. And he says, regardless, even though you're, it's okay if, if you don't want a sign from me, I'm still going to give you a sign. And in verse 14 we read, right? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Isaiah speaks on behalf of God and says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know what this is referring to. God is saying to Ahaz and to the people, you know, I'm going to still give you a sign. I'm still going to give you a promise. I'm still going to deliver you. And in fact, the salvation that I'm going to bring you is not, it's not a small salvation. It's just not, it's not just relief uh, from your present conflicts with your enemies right now, but this is an everlasting salvation, everlasting peace that I want to come and establish among you. And it's not just about you, but it's about my people. And it's not just about Israel. It's about my people, you know, through generations, Gentiles as well are included in this blessing that comes to us, this promise. And we know that this promise is absolutely fulfilled in Jesus Christ because when we read Matthew 1, 27, that's one of the things that the angels say when they announce the birth of Jesus, that his his name would be Emmanuel. God's ultimate promise of salvation is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This promise that he had given through Isaiah to Ahaz and, 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 and to his people 700 years uh, before the coming of Christ was fulfilled with the coming of Christ, was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ. And we must ask the question, you know, therefore, why did God send Jesus? Why is this God's way of providing for our care and saving us by sending his son? Was God sending Jesus because we needed um, a teacher? Was God sending Jesus or did God send Jesus because we needed an example? No. See, what do teachers do when you are... Uh, what do teachers say to you? They say, you know, here's the re- what the research says, right? Here's the information. Here's the knowledge base. When you are under siege, when you are under pressure, when your enemies are breathing down your neck, a teacher comes to you and says, here's the instructions of how to navigate through this problem. And that's what so many of us uh, go to on a daily basis. You know, we're listening to uh, TED Talks and motivational talks, good advice about life. Nothing wrong with that, but that's what teachers do, and that's ultimately not what we needed. That's not what Ahaz ultimately needed. That's not what you ultimately need. You want to get out of the situation, but that's not what you ultimately need. When you are under siege and your enemies are breathing down your neck, you don't need a good example. 
a model. What does a model do? A model says, you know, here's how I've done it. Right? Look at my life. Look at my story. Copy it. You don't need that. Because you can't most of the time. Each person is unique and each person has a story. And you can't copy anyone's life. Maybe you can copy a little bit of their example. But you really, it really isn't helpful when you're in this situation, in this place. When you're, when you're in this place, when you're under siege and your enemies are breathing down your neck. Well, you know what you need? You need a savior. See, a savior is unlike a teacher and a, like a, a good example or a model because a savior comes to you and says, you know, I'm here to do what you can't do for yourself. See, we believe that God helps those who help themselves, but the message of the gospel tells us this, that God helps those who can, cannot help themselves, and that's why Jesus has come, right? That's why Jesus has come. If you feel desperate right now, if you feel cornered in life, if you feel unlovable or unloved, the message of the gospel through Christmas says that God has sent a Savior to rescue you, to your and for your rescue. And I don't know who you are. Maybe I do know who you are. You know, I know, you know most of you here, but I don't know every single person in this room. But I don't know your life, your life story, and I don't know your secret life, but God knows And maybe you feel inadequate in approaching God and receiving this gift from God. But let me tell you this. If God can show grace to a person as bad as Ahaz, what makes you think that you're beyond the reach of God's grace and love in your life? See, this is what this message is about. God's love has come to us in action. And God's love in action is called grace. That's what it is. But it gets better. Like I said, in this passage, we also see God's love in person. See, God not only demonstrates, demonstrates love to us by coming to our rescue, but he comes to our rescue personally. He doesn't send someone, but his salvation is such that he comes to our rescue personally. God shows up at our doorsteps. Now think about the name of the Savior that would come. That in our, in, in, in our point in time in history, We believe that he has come. He is called Emmanuel. See, names in Jewish culture were prophetic utterances given so that, uh, you know, the meaning of your name would shape your identity as a person as you developed and you grew into an adult and mature human being. In our culture, there's a little bit of that, but in Jewish culture, this is huge. See, our names don't mean too much. See, my name is Felipe, for instance, right? And um, a while ago, I did a, I did a, a study uh, to find out what my name really means. And my name means Philos, uh, friend, Ipos, Felipe, Philos, Ipos, uh, friends of horses. And I was like, I don't like horses. This is not, this is not informative of my personality. It's not informative of, of, of my personality. But my dad said that the reason why he named me Felipe, was my dad's also a pastor and theologian. He named, he named me after Phil, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's sidekick. He was sort of Luther's theologian. And, you know, while my dad was in seminary, he was really impacted by Philip Melanchthon's life. And so he named me Felipe. So maybe that was prophetic in that sense, right, that I now am a pastor. Um, and, and, and I'm, you know, preaching the gospel. Uh, but, you know, in Jewish culture, this was huge. And, and, and this is the name that's given to Jesus, Emmanuel. 
And in this passage, we don't know, uh, it's, not it's not telling us what Emmanuel means, but in Matthew 127, we learn that Emmanuel means God with us, God with us. And it tells a whole lot about Jesus. And this name that's given to the Savior tells us a whole lot about the Savior. The first thing that it tells us is God, right? It tells us that Jesus is God. That's the first thing. Now, I, I believe that what Christmas does to us, it, it pushes us to make our own opinions about who Jesus is. And I think that it, it would be unwise for you to go through this Christmas season or any other Christmas season in the future without really trying to come to grips with who Jesus really said he was and who Jesus, who, who Jesus was. But what we learn here is that Jesus is God, that this Savior that God would send into the world would be God. God would walk into our darkness. God would work, walk into our brokenness. He would enter our situation. Now, some of you are thinking, well, of course, you know, ancient people, uh, they were, uh, you know, very superstitious, and they were not scientific as we are, and they obviously tended to believe things like that. You know, maybe Jesus is a good teacher. Maybe Jesus is a good example. Uh, he's an inspirational leader for sure, but I don't know if Jesus was really God. Those people there, they had the right to believe it, and I can understand why they believe it, but I can't believe this today. Here's the first thing that I always tell people that, that, that make that argument. First, don't have chronological snobbery. You know what chronological snobbery is? is to think that we are smarter than people that lived and walked this earth 2,000, 2000 years ago, okay? Now, let me tell you this. The IQ levels have not really gone up that much within 2,000 years. Maybe just a one point or half a point, but the research will tell you that IQ levels have not gone up. There were smart people back then as there are today, and they wrestled with this claim, and they wrestled with this idea as you are wrestling it with it now. And besides that, Jewish people were the last people on earth, they're still the last people on earth today to believe that God actually could be a man, could come and walk into this, in, 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 into our world, right? So who was Jesus? I think that this is very significant as you go through this season, because why are we, you know, here singing these songs and while we have all these props here and all these colors and lights, you know, why are we participating in parties uh, that surround this theme of Christmas? Are we doing that because we believe that there was someone that was important like Jesus, uh, you know, to the level of someone like Gandhi that was a good teacher, good example, or maybe someone that inspired us with his art like Elvis, right? Is that what we're doing here? Or the reason why we observe and we celebrate Christmas and we go through the season with Advent with a sober mind is because we believe that Jesus really was God and it was significant and it was history changing and it was a revolution when he walked and he came into this world. And not only did he change history, not only is he, has he promised to change the world completely, but he is changing my life as well now in the present. You know, a while ago, there was an interview uh, that Bono gave, you know, because the, the lead singer of U2, uh, I, he's more of like a, a singer in a band from my generation, right? I, some of you guys, millennials, you're into other stuff like Justin Bieber, and <laughs> I'm just kidding. That, that was very offensive, very offensive. Um, I can be that, uh, so I apologize. But uh, again, <laughs> you know, he... he 
Since, since they, they started the band, they wrote all these songs that were spiritual in nature, and a lot of Christians were claiming, you know, Bono to themselves. Oh, he is part of us. He is one of us. And other people are saying, no, 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 no. He's just, you know, with the times, and there's like a surge in spirituality nowadays, and that's why he writes what he writes. But he's not really a Christian. He doesn't belong to any religion. And so at one point, they cornered him, and they said, do you really, do you really believe that Jesus was the Son of God? So you, you say you're Christian, you were baptized, or maybe you were a Christian, but do you believe that Jesus was God. And, and this, is, this was his response. I don't know if you remember what he said, he, but he said this. He, he said, uh, when people say good teacher, prophet, really nice guy, this is not how Jesus thought of himself. So you're left with a challenge in that, which is either Jesus was who he said he was or a complete and utter nutcase. And I believe that Jesus was, you know, the son of God. So he, he actually really, really said it because he, he wrestled with this. See, the people in Jesus's days, they had two reactions. There were two common reactions towards Jesus. You know, there were people that were saying, you know, this guy is crazy. This guy is a lunatic because he was doing things such as forgiving sin. Now, I can be, I can be in a fight with someone. Imagine me being in a conflict with someone, you know, and the relationship sort of falling apart. And, you know, I, you know obviously I would have said, you know, hurtful things and have heard hurtful things and all, and all that sort of thing. But then imagine someone walking uh, into my life. I can, I can picture someone walking into my life and say, Felipe you are forgiven for what you did to Beth, your wife, or someone else, right? That would be very, very weird. I would think, you know, I need her forgiveness, but how can you forgive me? Well, because Jesus, he is working from the perspective that he is God. And so there are people listening to that. He was relating himself to the God of the Old Testament. Man, this guy is crazy. And there were people that were actually bending their knees and worshiping him as God. But there was no opinion such as, oh, what an inspirational leader. What a, what a beautiful soul. What a beautiful human being. What a good and inspirational example. None of that. So you can't say that either. You have to make up your mind about Jesus. And this is a very appropriate season for you to do that. And secondly, this is what we learn about his name. Okay, so he is, it's Emmanuel is God with us. Uh, the second thing that we can think about is that he is God with us. Now, I, I want the, the with to be like a plus sign uh, because that's what it means as well. Uh, God was born into the world and he did not cease to be God, but by being born into the world, he added to his divine being a human nature. This is so encouraging because the first, the first body of truth, right, that Jesus is God ought to humble us, that God is in Jesus Christ is the ultimate salvation that we need, that we can't save ourselves. That ought to humble any proud feeling here of deservedness. But then, you know, this whole idea that Jesus takes upon himself human nature ought to be very humbling and encouraging for some of us because God understands what it means to navigate through life. What a, what, what, you know, what a great picture of God's vulnerability as Jesus comes into the world in the form of a baby. He could have walked into the scene by parting the skies and walking in with, you know, riding a, uh, a beautiful white stallion with a band of angel armies uh, behind him with trumpets and waving swords. But he chooses to come into history as a vulnerable, vulnerable baby. You know, think about that. A baby cannot help himself to get dressed, to, to eat, to protect himself, to move from place A to place B. He needs the help of others. It's a beautiful picture of vulnerability. And that's how God comes into the world to show that his salvation is not like the salvation that the kings of Assyria can provide. 
you know, it's for the strong, but it's a salvation that comes to the weak and for the weak people. It's for those of us. God enters our world in order to save us from our condition and identifies with us in our pain, you know, so much so that C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, this is the son of God became a man to enable men to become children of God. That's what's significant about Jesus coming to the world and becoming a man. But here's the other aspect as well. So it's God, Emmanuel is God with us, God, Jesus is God, God plus us, Jesus is man, and Jesus is God with us, meaning he is God's salvation for us. What ultimately Christmas teaches us is that, uh, that uh, Jesus is God by our side and God on our side. By our side and God on our side. Whatever you're going through in life, not only does Jesus understand because he was a human, he was rejected, he suffered, um, he was betrayed. Whatever you may be going through in life, right? He was broke, he was poor. Jesus went through. But, but what's most encouraging about that is wherever you find yourself in life, he is there by your side. That's the promise of Christmas that comes to us. That when you do not like to believe that God or anyone could have any or would want to have anything to do with you and that you're left to yourself, right? In your darkest moments, this word comes as an encouragement because it says that God is by our side. You know, I remember a, a pastor telling a story of a, um, uh, a church member that uh, had lost one of his children. And he was uh, at the hospital uh, when his child died. The child was battling with cancer and um, sitting in the, a, the lobby area of the hospital uh, right after that had happened. And he says the two people came to see him. Uh, one person was a church member, like a, ch- a friend from church. And uh, what that person did was that person quoted 10 Bible verses, right, as he was really sad. By the way, never do that, guys, when someone is in pain, when someone's in suffering. Set, you know, set the Bible aside. Live the Bible out, all right? Don't quote the Bible to people. That, that's very, very um, patronizing, I, I, would, I should say. And, and, you know, he says that as this person was quoting all good things, you know, all good passages, you know, he's quoting the Bible for God's sake. He was, he was thinking to himself, man, I would love to see this person go, right? God, he, as the person was praying for him, he was praying, God, take this person from me, okay? But then another person came, another friend from church, and said nothing and sat with him for hours, and he was saying, I, mean, I hope this person does not leave. I would hate to see him go. See, God's salvation came to us like that, visiting us on our condition, saying to us not only that he is with us through the trials and the sieges of life, but he's on our side. He's on to protect us. And in his right timing, the deliverance and the salvation has come. But he has provided us a greater salvation that we, if we are grounded in it, and this has been the theme, I think, of this series, if we're grounded in God's future salvation, we have what it takes to navigate anything in this life because our hope does not lie in the present, but our ultimate hope lies in the future, the future that God has in store for us in Jesus Christ. The promise of Christmas is that Jesus one day will return and he will finish salvation as he has come to establish the first time. You know, the world is still filled with pain and when we look and watch images of what's happening in Aleppo, I was, Aleppo, I was watching some of these images this week. I did the mistake of going into this website and looking at some of these pictures. Man, it's gut-wrenching. All the children that have died, right? 
All the families have been torn apart. All the cities just in ruins. We still are reminded of the brokenness and fragility of life, even in this season. But the hope of Christmas is that Jesus is going to one day come and he's going to put all wrongs to right. And he's going to dry up every tear. And that salvation that a God has brought into the world will come into completion in the second coming of Christ. And it ought to encourage us in the present to deal with anything because nothing can rob us of our joy. Nothing can rob us of our our security and the status that we share because of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. See, this is what the message of Christmas is all about. That God is on your side and God is by your side. Now, some of you are saying, okay, beautiful words, pastor, but I still don't feel it. Is there a sign for me? I I would love to have a sign um, to be assured that God actually really does love me. And oh my, do we have a sign? Do we have a sign? See, in verse 10, the words again are, ask ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heavens. Man, and God has given us a sign that is as deep as Sheol and as high as the heavens. His salvation is as deep as Sheol and as high as the heavens. How so? Okay, first of all, his salvation is as deep as Sheol. Where do we see God's salvation as deep as Sheol? On Christmas Day, the creator God of the universe, the one who has created everything and everyone, comes into our world and he's laying on a trough in a manger, surrounded by animals, by his poor teenage parents, and by animal poop, really. That's the picture. He descended to the lowest. And, you know, and that's how he comes into the world, but how, how Jesus dies also gives us a great picture of God's salvation going to the depths of hell. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, how does Jesus die? He dies on the cross. On the cross, Jesus descends into hell. He's, he goes to the lowest state. Uh, you know, here at Crossbridge, every once in a while, we recite the Apostles' Creed. And one of the things that we say in the Apostles' Creed is that we believe that Jesus descended into hell. On the cross, Jesus is deserted by God. On the cross, Jesus cries out for salvation. Jesus is under siege, and he cries out to God, God, come to my rescue, as Ahaz should have done. And God says, nope, because had God come to Jesus' rescue on the cross, he could not have rescued us from the enemies of death, sin, and hell. Had Jesus not gone to hell on our behalf, we could not have been pulled out of hell. So Jesus deserted in our place. God's salvation to us shows that God was willing to descend as low as Sheol for us so that we can be raised and brought up to the heavenly places and be adopted into God's family and be assured of his love for us. Now, listen to this, and I say this all the time, guys. Look, when you look at the, at the manger and when you look at the cross, you may not find the answers to your problems of why you're suffering. You know, one day I hope that you will find these answers. Maybe in eternity you will get to ask these questions to God. Why did I go through this? Or why did that person go through that? Why did you allow these wars? We will, and we will plus, you know, have wisdom there or then that we will have clarity to understand everything that has happened. We will see the work of art in full. Not in the, the, the you know, the 
the, the brush strokes that are now being done by God who is an artist, but we will see the full work in view. We will have the full work in view. But one thing that you cannot doubt when you look at the manger and at the cross is that God does not love you. You cannot doubt that. Because how can you say that God does not love you or that you are unlovable if he was willing to go to these places for you? And my hope is that as you go through the season, you have one more week and, you know, we're going to be celebrating Christmas Eve and Christmas Day at Pinecrest. If you can't come here on the eve, we're having a service there in the morning of Christmas Day. This is my plug for that service. Um, you know, you have one more week to really think hard about this and, and to really get on with the real spirit of Christmas. And, this, and, you know, and the way you do that is by asking yourself, do I really believe that Jesus is God's salvation for me? That he is God on my side and by my side? And you allow that thought and that idea and that truth to permeate the darkest places of your heart and bring light. And if you do, I think that, you know, this Christmas will be a very different experience for you. When you sing the carols or when you sing, for instance, Hark the the Herald, it will have a completely different meaning to you. In the words of Christ, the highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the favored one, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. You will sing as if it in fact is true. Let's pray.